Thanks so much, loyal blog readers. We're here for the next episode of our Friday weekly podcast called The Class Action Weekly Wire. I'm Jerry Matman, a partner at Dwayne Morris, and joining me today are my colleagues, Rebecca Bjork and Eden Anderson. Welcome. It's great to be here, Jerry. Thanks for having me, Jerry. Absolutely. Today, we wanted to discuss trends and important rulings in the area of arbitration in the class action space. Here's a question for both of you. What do you think, in your opinion, were some of the most significant developments on the arbitration front in class action litigation? Well, Jerry, in recent years, the Supreme Court has held that arbitration agreements requiring waiver of class and collective actions are enforceable under the Federal Arbitration Act and not precluded by the National Labor Relations Act, and also held that arbitration on a class-wide basis cannot be compelled absent unambiguous consent. And the Supreme Court's pro-arbitration posture has continued into 2022. Uh, Yes, in fact, the US Supreme Court issued two notable arbitration decisions in 2022, Viking River Cruises Inc. v. Moriana et al. and Southwest Airlines Company v. Saxon. In Viking River Cruises, the Supreme Court held that the FAA preempted California's rule barring individual arbitration of PAGA claims. In Saxon, although the Supreme Court applied the FAA's transportation exemption to preclude arbitration, it emphasized that that exemption is to be narrowly construed. Certainly both were uh, somewhat controversial uh, opinions, depending on what side of the V one finds themselves on. But with respect to Viking River, how has that impacted PAGA litigation and the issue specifically of PAGA standing? Gary, after Viking River cruises, employers have been pursuing petitions to compel arbitration of individual PAGA claims and requesting dismissal of the representative PAGA claim for lack of standing. And while California courts have been granting the former request, The majority of courts have denied the latter request for dismissal on grounds that the U.S. Supreme Court erred in its analysis of PAGA standing, which is an issue of state law. So there are now two published decisions from the California Court of Appeal, which are binding on our lower courts here, that reject Viking River Cruises' conclusions about standing requirements under PAGA. And as we all know, the California Supreme Court is currently considering that PAGA standing issue in the case called Adolf et al. v. Uber. Given the California Supreme Court's track record of pro-employee decisions, it ultimately may conclude that even if an individual PAGA claim has successfully been compelled to arbitration, the plaintiff still has standing to pursue a representative PAGA claim in court. Thus, while the Viking River Cruises decision was initially seen as a big win for employers, it may ultimately be the case that the decision merely permits PAGA plaintiffs to split their claims and pursue them in two separate forums. Now, briefing in Adolf has concluded, so we expect a decision sometime this year. Well, we'll definitely have to get you both back for a podcast when Adolf comes down because that will be exceedingly controversial. I expect it once again, but In terms of the FAA's transportation exemption, what do you see happening in light of the Saxon ruling? Well, as background for listeners, Section 1 of the FAA provides that transportation workers engaged in interstate commerce are exempt from arbitration. And the plaintiff's bar has increasingly used this exemption to try to keep their clients out of the arbitral forum. 
Saxon was a putative class action alleging violations of the Fair Labor Standards Act. The Supreme Court unanimously held that the transportation worker exemption applies to an airline ramp supervisor who loaded and unloaded airplane cargo. Uh, but in doing so, the Supreme Court narrowly interpreted the scope of the exemption, uh, rejecting Saxon's argument that the exemption should apply to all airline employees. The Supreme Court explained that the focus on the exemption analysis is on the actual work performed by the employee and not on what the employer does generally. Well, I know there's going to be uh, many, many cases pivoting off uh, Saxon in that vein. What do you see, you both studied in this area, what do you see as the significant rulings on arbitration in the class action space outside of California this past year? Several rulings actually were issued in 2022 regarding the exemption analysis as it applies to delivery drivers uh, and in immediato at all the Postmates. The First Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that those plaintiffs were not engaged in interstate commerce under Section 1 of the FAA and were by definition outside of the scope of Section 2 of the FAA, which provides that the statute applies to all contracts involving interstate commerce. The First Circuit also applied this same reasoning to a different delivery driver class action in Levine et al. v. Grubhub Holdings. And also in Flylo Falcon versus Amazon, the district court for the Western District of Washington held that the transportation worker exemption was not intended to exempt incorporated entities, such as the plaintiffs who were delivery service partners from the FAA's requirements. Rather, the exemption applies only to individual workers. So many of our clients have adopted workplace class action waivers in their arbitration agreements as a risk mitigation uh, device. And we see many plaintiff's lawyers certainly not taking that lying down and challenging uh, the bona fides of that arbitration agreement, both with respect to contract formation or assent. What have you seen in that particular space in terms of court rulings on the actual formation of a arbitration agreement between a company and its employee? Well, that's exactly right, Jerry. Another strategy utilized by the plaintiff's bar in opposing arbitration is to focus on and contest whether their clients actually assented to an arbitration agreement. And that can be seen in Mendoza versus Trans Valley Transport, uh, where the California Court of Appeal held that an arbitration policy contained in an employee handbook was unenforceable because the parties hadn't entered into a binding agreement. And so the employer there couldn't compel arbitration and could not, um, more importantly, enforce the arbitration policy's class action waiver. And the arbitration policy there, as I mentioned, was in a handbook. Uh, the handbook stated that it couldn't be amended or modified, or that it could be amended or modified by the employer at any time. It wasn't signed, uh, nor was there a place for the employee to initial acceptance of the arbitration policy. And the handbook had no table of contents drawing attention to the arbitration policy. So based on all of those facts, the Court of Appeal agreed with the trial court's conclusion that the parties had not entered into an agreement to arbitrate. And on the flip side, in a pro-employer decision, the Ninth Circuit reversed a district court's order denying a motion to compel arbitration in Martinez-Gonzalez v. Elkhorn Packing Company. The court found that the plaintiff had the option not to sign the agreement and could have simply asked if he had to do so to keep his job. 
Additionally, the agreement provided for revocation and the court found that it was implausible that the plaintiff's will had been overborne by high pressure tactics as a result of that. Now, switching gears just ever so slightly, one of the uh, hot button issues uh, when it comes to the intersection of arbitrations and class actions is a device of the plaintiff's bar to seek uh, mass arbitrations. I know, Eden, you spend a lot of time counseling employers on drafting arbitration agreements. What do you think are best practices or things that employers or corporations need to know about the problem of mass arbitrations? Right, Jerry. When when arbitration agreements include class action waivers, some plaintiff's attorneys have opted to pursue mass arbitration by filing hundreds uh, or even thousands of claims in arbitration. So adding a mass arbitration provision to an arbitration agreement uh, may serve to streamline those proceedings, uh, facilitate resolution, and limit exposure if the provision is well-crafted. I've always thought as a defense lawyer in class actions, the best way to defeat a class action is before it even starts by virtue of uh, strategic use of an arbitration agreement. So my sense is it's, this is gonna be a hot area in 2023. You both follow this area very closely. What do you see as developments that you're looking for that you think corporations ought to be on the lookout for in the coming year? Well, in February, an important decision was issued by the Ninth Circuit in Chamber of Commerce of the USA v. Rob Bonta that employers can require workers to sign arbitration agreements as a condition of employment. So that was definitely a significant development. And in addition, the California Supreme Court granted review of a California Court of Appeal ruling in Ramirez v. Charter Communications. And in that case, the court will determine uh, whether the California Court of Appeals erred in holding that a provision of an arbitration agreement allowing for recovery of interim attorney's fees after a successful motion to compel arbitration was substantively unconscionable to the degree that it rendered the entire arbitration agreement unenforced. So that's another one to keep our eye on. There were also two rulings issued in February by Judge Engelmeyer in the Southern District of New York, interpreting the scope of the ending forced arbitration of sexual assault and sexual harassment act, which invalidates pre-dispute agreements to handle sexual assault or harassment claims out of court and arbitration. In one case, the judge said that the statute precludes arbitration of a former employee's sexual harassment claims, as well as his other allegations. And in the other, the judge suggested that arbitration was off limits for different plaintiffs, uh, pay, uh, discrimination, retaliation, sick leave, and tort claims if the sexual harassment allegations she filed alongside them weren't implausible. I agree this is a really important case uh, because Judge Engelmeyer stated that the EFAA statutory text says that it invalids arbitration clauses with respect to a case filed under federal, straight, state, or tribal harassment law. Thus, a case refers to a whole lawsuit rather than the separate claims that comprise it. So to decide whether a sexual harassment or assault claim is in play, the judge ruled that the question is whether the plaintiff's complaint plausibly pleads the claim, and he essentially applied the Rule 12b-6 motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim standard. Those are great uh, factoids for corporate counsel to follow. I think that's going to be the first of many rulings on interpretation of just how far that statute 
precludes arbitration in federal court. As we uh, end up today's podcast, any other areas that corporate counsel should keep their eye on the ball on for 2023? Well, we anticipate continued argument over PAGA standing until Adolf is decided and that the plaintiff's bar will continue to craft arguments to oppose arbitration based on exemptions from the FAA. Uh, novel approaches will continue to develop and parties on both sides will evolve in their strategies in order to obtain success. It seems like the theme here is innovation and we certainly see it on both sides of the V from the plaintiff's class action bar and defense counsel. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca Neiden, for joining us and sharing your analysis of this particular area. Uh, thank you, blog readers, for tuning in. And if you have any questions or comments, please direct message them to us at DM Class Action. Have a great day. Thank you.